we have a consumption problem. <laughs> I mean, we really do. We, we, we have a consumption problem. And I could talk about lottery tickets and cigarettes and clothes and food. We'll talk about food in a couple weeks, actually. Uh, but today I want to talk specifically about our media consumption and throw some statistics your way to help us kind of come to an agreement that we've got a problem with consumption. So in Canada, we watch 140 million hours of Netflix a day. 140 million hours of Netflix a day. That's 71 minutes of Netflix per person per day. In North America, the typical person spends more, typical, now average, more than two hours per day on social media. That's more than twice what the typical parent spends bonding with their children. And we still spend 26 hours a week watching TV, more than an entire day, 26 hours. We, we consume so much media that they actually call us consumers. I mean, Chipotle doesn't call us eaters, they call us guests. Uh, but, but when it comes to media, we're called consumers. We're actually given that identifying label. Interestingly enough, I watched The Social Dilemma last night. It's a documentary on Netflix. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? Okay, so I watched Social, Social Dilemma last night. Highly recommend it. But they say there are only two markets out there where the, where the kind of the audience or the consumer is identified as a user. Social media and drugs. I mean, we are addicted to consuming media. And studies show that it affects our entire perception of life. Most people think that we live in a more violent world than we really do. Why? Because they see so much violence in media. Uh, media contributes to anxiety and depression because on social media, you get that instant gratification of a like or a comment or whatever. And in real life, you really don't get that. And so when we leave social media and we interact in real life, don't get instant gratification. It uh, contributes to anxiety and depression. It con contributes to the way we view our own bodies because here we are scrolling through Instagram, looking at skinny people's feeds, right? We're comparing their highlight reel to our cutting floor and all the while shoving pizza in our face, scrolling through skinny people's feeds, telling ourselves that we don't look good enough. It, all of this media consumption contributes to the way we see the world and it shapes us and it's shaped us to our very core. In fact, Marshall McLuhan, who I've quoted before in sermons, was a, uh, really a media expert and philosopher and he, he writes this. He said, all media work us over completely. They are so pervasive in their personal, political, economic, aesthetic, psychological, moral, ethical, and social consequences that they leave no part of us untouched, unaffected, unaltered. In other words, what McLuhan is saying is we got a consumption problem. And it's not just the amount we consume, it's how deeply it affects us. Oddly enough, uh, the first century church in a city called Corinth had a consumption problem too. Uh, 
Uh, Corinth was a Roman colony and a port city. And so it was really a commercial hub for that part of the world. Lots of commercial traffic going in and out of that city. And so they were very, very wealthy, a very, very wealthy city. Lots of people with lots of money. They were also a fairly liberal city from a moral perspective. They actually had a temple to a sex goddess where they employed thousands of temple prostitutes. And it was just kind of a normal thing for people to go there and worship with a temple prostitute. I mean, they had all the ingredients of a consumption problem as well. And here's here's the deal. The church in Corinth, just like the church in the greater Toronto area and the church in North America, was not immune to the consumption disease. The consumption disease had infected the church as well. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul wants to offer a solution or offer a, a diagnosis and then a treatment plan for our consumption disease. Now, check it out. If you have your Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, probably as a response to the letter, a letter that they had written to him and said, Paul, we've got some problems, one of them being consumption or maybe better said, overconsumption, would you address this? And he addressed a bunch of other issues in this particular letter, but here he is about to address their consumption problem. Verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be divisions among you uh, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, so a couple of things to understand as Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. It sounds a little bit like he's talking about communion here, and in part, he really is. But participating in the Lord's Supper now and participating in the Lord's Supper 2,000 years ago were very different. Uh, they, they didn't have like a little wafer and a little cup of juice. You know, that wasn't what they were doing. 2,000 years ago, the church would gather in homes and they would enjoy what's called a love feast. It would be a bunch of people getting together for a big meal. And at the end of that meal, they would remember and commemorate the Lord's death. Uh, they were, like I said, called agape feasts or love feasts. So this wasn't like a little piece of wafer and a little bit of juice. And here's the way those meals worked. You would come into kind of an outer court of this home and the people who got to eat first were the people who were honored or important or powerful, typically men, typically people with money. And they would go in and they would eat their fill first and then women, children, less powerful, uh, less wealthy would get to eat after the fact. And so Paul is saying, look, when you gather, here's what's happening. The powerful and important people are eating their fill and getting drunk and there's not enough for others to go around. So he, what he's saying is in verse 18, look, 
I got a problem with this because that means there are divisions among you. And really, this is Paul's core problem. Paul's issue with the Corinthian church is division. And it's division primarily between the haves and the have-nots. Those with privilege in society, those with money in society, again, they got to eat first and they left the poor, the widow, the orphan, the less important, if you will, to kind of pick up table scraps, so to speak. He says, man, I don't like these divisions. And so that makes verse 19 facetious. Do you see what he says? He says, for there must be factions among you. Think about that as a sarcastic remark. Paul is not immune to sarcastic remarks, by the way. This is something he does in his letters. He goes, oh, yeah, of course, there's got to be factions among you. There have to be divisions. Otherwise, then you don't know who's a real follower of Jesus or not. (laughs) This is a sarcastic remark. Paul goes even further in verse 22. He goes, look, if this is what's going to happen, these divisions among you, you better just stay home. That's just a a better idea. You just stay home and, and, and eat at the house. So so now he's identified the problem, hasn't he? Look, you come together to eat. There are divisions among you and the haves are treated better than the have-nots. And they are over-consuming and leaving the have-nots with nothing. So so he's identified the problem. Look, now he's going to talk about the solution. Verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Mm. It's fascinating as I study this text this week, because as long as I've been a pastor, I've been using this little scripture as a communion intro. And I think it's a great communion intro, not a bad communion intro. I like it. I'm going to probably continue to use it. But remember, our modern communion celebration and ceremony is very different than what's happening. So, So let's understand Paul's exhortation here in the context of a love feast, a big meal that the early church celebrated together. And Paul is saying this, look, there are divisions, not unity. There's overconsumption, not moderation. There's a hierarchy of rich and poor, the haves and the have-nots. Those things are bad. But why? That's the critical question. Why are they bad? Paul says the why is simple. It's because of Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed, gave us this meal to represent his self-giving love. This is why in verse 26, Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death, not his death and resurrection, but just his death until he comes again. This meal is about our giving of ourselves to one another. And why do we do that? Well, we follow the self-giving, sacrificial example of Christ. He says, look, The problem is divisions and overconsumption. Why is that a problem? Because you're not following the sacrificial example of Jesus who gave us this meal as a celebration and remembrance of his self-giving love that led him even to death. Now Paul goes on, verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup 
of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so, again, remember, don't think little communion cup and little wafer here. Think of a full meal commemorating Christ's death. He says, if you have not adopted this, uh, this posture of self-giving sacrificial love, set an example set by Jesus, then you're not really doing this uh, gathering peace in a worthy manner. He goes on, verse 28, he says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, stop there again. It's very interesting. Because again, we've used this verse to mean, hey, before you take the little wafer and the little cup, confess any known sin, enjoy God's forgiveness, and make sure you've got a clear conscience with God. That's a great idea. It's not a bad idea. I would encourage you to do the same. But here's the deal. Paul is saying more than that. He's saying, when you gather with the body, check yourself and ask, have I been captured, enamored, and transformed by the self-giving, sacrificial love of Christ? Am I posturing my own heart in the same way? It's, 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 this is the difference here. It's the difference between a guy who works construction all day and, and, and he's, he's put in a 12-hour day, and he's sweaty, and he's dirty, and stuff on his face, and he shows up to your house for dinner, and he kind of just dusts off a little bit and comes right in. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, this is not a dust-off type of situation. This is a shower-and-change type of situation. This is not clear your conscience before you take a little wafer and drink a little cup. This is a complete reorientation of one's heart and following after the self-giving sacrificial example of Jesus and then posturing ourselves toward one another in that same way. Paul continues, verse 29. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, some of you want me to unpack those verses completely and talk about the weak and death and all that stuff and judged and judged by the Lord. And I just don't have time to do it. What I want to say real quickly here is what Paul is telling us is, look, your position before God is sinner in need of a Savior. Make sure we get that straight. Then your position to the body of Christ now is just not, you know, one among equals. It is servant of all. Once again, following after the example of Christ, who washed feet and gave of himself in a sacrificial service, self-giving manner. So now Paul wants to apply it. Here we go. Verse 33 says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Okay, so remember our customs here. Paul's exhortation to wait does not mean, hey, you've served your food, go sit at the table, and it's polite, right? Have a little bit of manners. Wait until everybody is seated, then we'll pray, then you can eat. I don't know about you, but in my house growing up, it was cool to have a sip of your beverage, right? Water, milk, juice. You could you have a drink before we pray, but don't you touch your food until everybody's at the table. That's not what Paul's saying here. 
In fact, uh, Brandon Bernard, our youth director, pointed out to me this week that that word in the original language, wait for one another, means enthusiastic welcome. Hmm. That puts another spin on it, doesn't it? Paul is saying, don't, if you're a person of honor or power in a society or in a culture, don't go eat and drink your fill and just leave the scraps for others. Don't overconsume. And if you're tempted to do so, eat a little bit at home before you come so that everybody has enough, so that you can enthusiastically welcome all into the fold of God. Hmm. So we got it. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. So what in the world does that have to do with consumption? Well, for the Corinthians, what was happening is they were ignoring those with needs in their congregation because the opportunity to consume had totally captured their attention. They were overeating and overdrinking while others went hungry. They were so concerned with themselves that they forgot the needs of others. And friends, this principle of overconsumption and neglecting others does not just apply to food. Paul is using this as a microcosm and an example, but he is inviting us, uh, encouraging us, exhorting us to adopt this posture in all of our lives. So for our culture now, would I say that we eat too much and the rest of the world goes hungry? Yep, I'll say it again in two weeks when we talk more specifically about poverty and hunger in our world. But let's go back to our infatuation with media, shall we? Our infatuation with media means our kids are neglected. It does. Remember, I'm just gonna go back to that example I used a minute ago in that statistic. The average person spends over two hours a day on social media. They spend less than half of that time bonding with their children. We have over-consumed media and we've left our kids the scraps. We spend, as a country now, 1.7 billion, with a B, billion dollars on in-app purchases. That means you're playing Candy Crush and you run out of lives and you gotta spend $1.99 to get five more lives because you're addicted to Candy Crush. And it means that that $1.7 billion that we spend on in-app purchases every year as a country don't go towards moving the kingdom of God forward and doing any sort of restorative work in our culture and society. Our addiction to Instagram, and it is an addiction, my friends, means that we compete with one another. We don't end up seeing one another as individuals made in the image of God. We're seeing each other as people, am I better looking or worse looking? Should I look more like what I see uh, when, when I filter my picture? Should I look more like that person? He's jacked, I need to do more quad reps, or he's got great abs, or what a great sport coat. Those are obviously hypothetical examples. Of course they're not. And either way, it's objectification, isn't it? 
whether I see myself as not as good looking or better looking, uh, not as wealthy or more wealthy, not as happy or more happy. This is all a comparison game whereby we objectify one another and don't see each other as human beings. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, you are over consuming and you're focused on yourself and it prevents you from truly seeing, not just seeing as in, yeah, I know they were there, but seeing the needs in the body of Christ. Now, look, I'm not saying that your Instagram filters are wrong. I'm not saying that Facebook is wrong. I'm not saying that binge watching The Office on Netflix is wrong. Just like Paul is not saying that food is wrong. But here's our bottom line truth today. Ready? What we're saying here is because of Christ and his example, manage your own consumption so that you can be a creator and not a consumer in the world. Manage your own consumption. Moderate it. Exercise the fruit of the Spirit called self-control. Manage your own consumption. You can start with media because that really is a pandemic, uh, just like the one we're facing in COVID-19. But, but our addiction to media and, and social media in particular is a pandemic in our society. But there's all sorts of other things that we consume. Clothes, alcohol, tobacco, lottery tickets, uh, cable TV, sports, whatever. We're just consuming, consuming, consuming. Paul says manage that. Manage that so that you can be a creator and not a consumer in culture, so that you can create joy and acceptance, so that you can create life and community, so that you can create spaces for people to feel safe and loved and accepted, and then subsequently respond to the good news about Jesus. Can I give you some specifics? Put down Instagram and look someone in the eye. In doing so, you have managed your own consumption and created belonging. Put down the remote control and pick up the phone to call a friend. In doing so, you've managed your own consumption and you've created acceptance for that person that you phone. Put down the credit card and pick up a giving opportunity. In this season, uh, we, we are just tempted to consume, consume, consume in our gift giving and parties and all that stuff. Put it down the credit card and pick up a giving opportunity. In doing so, you've managed your own consumption and created hope for someone in the world who might not otherwise have it. Put down Facebook and visit a neighbor. Socially distance with a mask, of course. You've managed your own consumption and, again, created community in your neighborhood. Put down your political podcast and listen to an opposing view. You've managed your own consumption, and now you start to really see another person as an image bearer of God and not just a political combatant. This is our first charge this Advent season. One thing that you can do something about you know, you can't do everything for everybody, but you can do something for somebody. You're not going to solve the world's problem with Instagram and Netflix. You're not going to solve all that. You're, we're not going to make, you know, you're not going to just, you know, there's no magic bullet for that. But you 
you can do something. So this Advent season, my encouragement to you is this. We have a consumption problem. And our consumption corruption is bringing corruption in the body of Christ and in the world. But if we model our lives after Jesus' self-giving love, we create a true, rich community with arms wide open to the world around us. And that's what we can do something about this season. As we approach... um, our Christmas Eve service, which I am so, so excited about. I I would encourage you in a couple of ways. One is that we, once again, have chosen to give our entire Christmas Eve offering away. This year, it's to four local organizations that are doing something in the greater Toronto area about the brokenness that we see in the world. And not only are we giving that offering away, but this year as a church, as an organization, we've actually decided to match it dollar for dollar. So whatever you give, we'll match and we'll give it away to four awesome organizations that are doing something about the corruption and brokenness that we see in our world. Uh, The very first is a group called Sanctuary. Sanctuary, uh, their mission statement, I love it. It says, we are becoming a healthy welcoming community in which people who are poor and excluded are particularly valued. This community is an expression of the good news embodied in Jesus Christ. Sanctuary as an organization and those who are individuals that serve with Sanctuary are really managing their own consumption, aren't they? So they can be creators in the world. And what they've done is they've created uh, meal plans for people and, and fed the hungry. They, they create spaces for people to share their art. They create safe worship spaces. They help people uh, transition into more permanent housing. They do so much for the greater Toronto area and they need our help. So can we manage our own consumption as we prepare for Christmas Eve so that we can help Sanctuary continue to move that mission forward? Uh, In fact, I think the greatest news, and and this might not sound like great news, but we're not meeting in person on Christmas Eve. We've decided to go totally digital. Uh, here's, Here's why that's great news, is that means you can invite people from everywhere. You can invite people from your country of origin. You can invite people from a neighboring province. You can invite your neighbor that says, oh, that's kind of a far drive. Well, no, it's not. All you have to do is park your rear end on your couch and turn on your TV (laughs) or computer or iPad or whatever. And we would encourage you as we prepare for Christmas Eve, start sending those invitations out now. We want anyone and everyone to join us this Christmas season, specifically on Christmas Eve, to join with us in moving the mission of God forward and and giving a gift uh, to these local organizations all around the greater Toronto area. And and we're going to do a great job on Christmas Eve. It's going to be produced well. You're going to love it. Your neighbors are going to love it, your friends and family. And we're going to have a blast uh, together on Christmas Eve. Until then, here's our encouragement. Manage your own consumption in the next weeks, months, even in the next couple days, so that you can be a creator and not a consumer in the world around us.